You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. The Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast is back with another episode. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from ESPN.com. I'm here in the same room with the other co-host of the Mixed Martial Arts Podcast, Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast, uh, Ben Folks from MMAFighting.com. Ben, how are you? That's right, same room. Up in this same room together. (laughs) Getting it done. Chopping Uh, it up. A lot to talk about this week, as always, in the world of MMA. This week we saw the uh, UFC on Fuel card that may or may not have produced Anderson Silva's next legitimate challenger and we also saw over the weekend another strike force show that that is just simply Listen brimming you, you're so so brimming with excitement over strike force I, I was just going to say brimming with with uh, relevant storylines <laughs> um but first first things first we would be remiss if we did not remind you all out there in uh, internet listener land that you have one more week to turn in your submission to the CME podcast's White Elephant Essay Contest. And it's heating up. It's, it is it's heating getting up. serious. It is international, like Shoney Carter. We have gotten multiple yeah. entries from across the pond. I have to say, the United Kingdom is really, really representing so far. Well, in a way a, that even the United States is not. They're illiterate people. They are. Uh, this reminds me, it's international, but has Mr. International himself, Shoney Carter, submitted an essay? Or are we still waiting on that? Not yet. We have to date received zero entries from professional mixed martial arts fighters, either current or retired. Okay. Well, he seems like a kind of a last minute kind of guy right up against the deadline. Well, yeah. Like he it, needs a deadline to get it done. If it were you know? me, I would want to make sure I had all my, my ducks in a row yeah. and my leather together, so to speak, <laughs> uh, before I... Before I turned in. So I assume that we're going to get a glut of submissions right up against the deadline, which I believe is midnight mountain time mountain next time, Tuesday. The one true time zone. That's right. Don't, don't fuck with us on this. All right? I swear to God, some asshole on the you know, Pacific time zone is probably going to send some shit in midnight his time and think that it's okay. And it's not okay. No, you will be missing out on a whole host of, of awesome Awesome prizes. That is true. And we have some new prizes this week to let the uh, let the listeners in on. We we found a box of stuff. It, I, I'm not even really sure where it came from. It came up on loot or... Yeah. Uh, you know, I have my theories about where it might have come from. I mean, okay, can't rule out train robbery. Nope. Could have been a train robbery. Could have been a high stakes card game involved during one of our many blackouts. Right. We, we have been known to get in, to blackout, go out on the town. You know, you come home with a pinky ring. Oh shit! I was in another high stakes poker game last night. It happens, is what I'm saying. You you can't you can't rule that out. The point is though, we we done came up as they say on a bunch of awesome stuff. Like we thought we had kind of awesome ish prizes for a white elephant essay contest done through a podcast. We thought we had some good stuff before, and then we saw this stuff. And honestly, it made the rest of our stuff look like dog poop. Would you agree, Chad? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely accurate. Um, some of it, I assume, we, are, we still want to keep secret, but uh, we found some what I would consider to be collector's item, limited edition Chris Lieben t-shirts. A lot of them. A lot of them. Yeah. In fact, at this point, I would say if you entered the contest, you're probably going to get one. <laughs> Unless we get more entries than, than I'm currently anticipating. But, but they're pretty awesome t-shirts uh, with... A slogan that fans of the original season of The Ultimate Fighter will, will no doubt be falling out over as soon as they see him. 
I mean, it's the kind of thing where if you're wearing this T-shirt around town, and I have never ever seen anyone wear one of these t-shirts around town which also makes it kind of special or anywhere (laughs) but if you're wearing one and somebody else sees you and they get the reference on that t-shirt you know you've met a friend yeah yeah it's instant credibility for everyone involved but let's talk about the granddaddy of them all because the lieben t-shirts are nice but we also found what has become and really it was a hands-down winner there was as soon as we laid eyes on it. it there was no question about it shit we found what will be the grand prize for the co-main event podcast, White Elephant Essay Contest. And boy, how to even describe yeah. it. Okay, well, let's start Let's start with some statement of facts. Uh, it's a painting, it is, for starters. It does appear to be a painting. It's a painting. Uh, it's framed. It is in a frame, the frame albeit weathered. Maybe, I would describe the frame as weathered. Maybe not the best frame, but a frame nonetheless. It... I'm going to I'm going to say is of Anderson Silva. Yeah, no, it's clearly a painting of UFC middleweight champion Anderson Silva. I don't know Silva. about clearly. I don't know if we can go that far. <laughs> uh, well, he's got a belt over his shoulder like Well, a, okay, but we don't even know what time period this is from and what belt it's supposed to be. Yeah, no, true. That could be the Rumble on the Rock belt yeah. or something. Okay, but here's the thing. It's a painting probably of Anderson Silva. <sighs> I don't know. See, here's the. Th- I won't, I'm not going to say it's a bad. Painting. No, it's not. Because there's mean, definitely some craft in this yeah, painting. Yeah, absolutely. From a technical standpoint, there are some good things at work there. I could not do this painting. No, there's no way I could produce anything even in the same ballpark as this painting. At the same time, let's say whoever painted this, they weren't going for strict realism. No, there are some issues. Uh, facially, I would say <laughs> there's there's some some facial issues, but. Again, maybe some per- issues of perspective. They seem like they're done on purpose. Like this is stylized. Either that or it was left out in the rain. <laughs> Which, g- given the conditions of the frame, I don't think we can rule that out. I'm going to say, though, caricature. Like it was done on purpose. Uh, God, I wish you could see it. Yeah, if you could see it, it'd just be so much better. Um, we wouldn't waste all this time describing it to you. You know what? This week, we will put a picture up. Of the grand prize on the website because I think once you see it, yeah, you're gonna want you're this gonna want it in and your it, house, and it's really probably gonna, over your bed. The stakes will be raised for the essay contest. I think once you see it, yeah. There's also like a an inscription on there in Portuguese, I believe, and it's and it's even signed. I'm not really sure what any of it says, but uh, somebody somebody put some time and some love into this. And yeah, it's like it's like if Van Gogh had a younger brother who was not as good. And kind of struggled to find his own footing in the art world, and he got really drunk one night. And let's—I don't want to—I don't want to make promises that we can't follow up on. What we have here is a print of the original. It's not—you're not going to be able to, to lovingly run your fingers over the actual paint. Uh, we have a print, but it's still pretty awesome. Which for me only deepens the questions of where this thing came yeah, from. Yeah, for all we know, there's five thousand of these <laughs> things out there, right? Don't you think we would have seen one by now? I don't know, man. It's it's all it's the MMA mystery. art galleries you go to, and you haven't seen this. <laughs> it's a mystery. Uh, anyway, uh, listener mail time uh, once again this week. Uh, we put out a call for your questions, and you guys responded pretty well. Um, if you have future questions for the podcast, you can email them to us at comaineventpodcast at gmail dot com, or go to the website comaineventpodcast dot com and hit up the handy link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. Uh, this week's first question comes from Joshua Autry, and he says, 
I'm wondering what you guys think about attending fights. I realize it's part of your profession, but as a fan of the sport, do you think everyone should attend at least one professional or even amateur MMA card? Or would you just rather sit at home with friends and buy the pay-per-view? The reason I ask is that I'm now living in Portland and the Strike Force event is going on this weekend. Uh-oh. Yeah, we missed the... Uh, A little late on that one. Yeah. Sorry. We Sorry. can't help Joshua out specifically, but we can speak to some generalities, I think, in the this... The spirit of the question, in this, if you will. Uh, in this question, yeah. And first of all, Portland, Oregon, one of the world's finest cities. Yes, absolutely. If you don't know that, you either did it wrong while you were there, or you've never been there. Yeah, absolutely. Best strip clubs in the nation, and I I'll believe just say that. most strip clubs per capita in the nation. Yeah, it's either that, most strip clubs or most strippers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. What and, I mean, maybe this is just my own personal stripper preference, but I love a strip club where you can go and not every woman you see there is surgically enhanced. And most of them probably have degrees in yeah. some arts type background. Art, arty type background. Yeah, so maybe, I love that shit. Maybe masters of fine arts and creative writing. Yeah, we know. I mean, I'm saying... From I know that the, doesn't get you a job. That's the only yeah, thing we can some say of the, sure. Some of the people that we did our MFA program with would have loved to have landed jobs as strippers. Absolutely loved. But okay, the question. Yeah, more to the point of Josh's question. Should Here, you go to a live event? Here's one of the things I wanted to say. Uh, generally, yes, you should go to a live event. And if you can, go to a UFC event. Yeah, because that's what I was going to say. As much They're as not we, all created equal. As much as we rag on the UFC for a number of different things, one of the things that I think they do really, really well is production values at their live events. Now, after you go to a dozen of them, you start yeah. to notice some similarities. <laughs> and uh, But, I mean, that's also part of – that's, I think, a uh, a virtues of their faults kind of scenario because – you notice the similarities because they have got that shit down to a science. Yeah, for sure. That That is a well-oiled machine. You know, you go to some other events, and they don't start when they're supposed to, and they don't seem exactly sure what they're going to do between fights. If a fight ends early, they you know they scramble around for a while trying to figure out what happens next. The UFC doesn't do that, man. I mean, they get the weigh-ins supposed to start at 4. Weigh-ins start at 4. Man. Yeah. You know, and then you go, you go to the event. They definitely know how to craft that that experience for you and how to kind of manipulate your emotions and get you to feel what they want you to feel at the right times, which is great for, you know, especially if, if you've never been to one and it's all new to you. Yeah. Uh, I think it's awesome. They do so much better live event stuff than anybody here, else. I mean, Strike Force, they do a little better now that Zoof yeah. is running the show, but still nowhere in the same here's, ballpark. Here's what I would recommend. If you have never been to a UFC show, pick one that you want to go to and pick one that is a big fight. Pick one that, that is a, like a grudge match or a title fight, a heavyweight championship fight. Yeah, I mean, fight. if you live in Omaha, maybe you don't have that, right. that luxury. I'm saying if you're going to like travel, if you're okay. making a point to go to one. Then pick, just go to Vegas and go to Pick one that's going to have a good fight. And I would also say, even though I don't think this is true of a lot of sporting events, uh, if you're just going to go to one for the experience, shell out the money to get decent tickets. Because uh, MMA is a sport that, that you kind of need to be able to see. And if you if you get but up I mean, at the top in the nosebleed okay, section at the top, of the stadiums, yeah. you but, end up watching the whole show on the on the big screen. But which if, you could just do because from you have home. floor seats does no, not necessarily mean yeah. those are going to be if good you seats. Can be I'd say like halfway up the, the lower, lower bowl. bowl. Yeah, I halfway up the lower bowl is kind of where you want to be. You have a great view, and also you know it's just a different experience. Uh, you know when you are up there in person and you can hear when when hard blows land. It's a little different than on TV, uh, and just the experience of seeing the guys walk out. For one thing, like the how loud the music is and the energy that that you know evokes when somebody is walking out and you recognize that entrance music you don't get that that doesn't come across on tv nearly as well as it does in a live event thing so i agree also and this is a tip that could be used for media too if you're going to go especially if you're going to go to las vegas to see a fight 
and you're going to get there a day or two beforehand and kind of take part in all the fight week festivities. Thursday night, that's the night you get irresponsibly drunk. Thursday yeah, night. Yeah. Not Friday night because no. you don't want to be hung over for fight night. Right. Particularly if you're a media person and you work. Trust me, I made this mistake over and over again. Thursday night, irresponsibly drunk. Friday night, in bed by 10 p.m. Yeah, and you know, uh, if you've never been to an MMA event at all, I would say go to an amateur event as well because some of the most horrific things that I've ever seen I've witnessed <laughs> at an amateur MMA event. Anyway, moving on. Question number two comes from Manuel Herwig, who says, So, Forrest Griffin uses TRT, huh? Rampage did for the Bader fight, Mir for JDS, and Chael versus Anderson. Now, I get that against Anderson and JDS, you can probably let their opponents inject meth directly into their hearts <laughs> between rounds, or whatever it was that guy from Ong Bak did, and it would not keep them from losing. But almost getting KO'd twice by the living death, aka Tito Ortiz, what kind of PED is that? Should we just put the TRT is cheating myth to bed? Okay, I am so glad that somebody asked this because I've seen this reasoning floating around just because you're doing something that is performance enhancing and you don't absolutely demolish the dude. That doesn't mean that we should just let everyone do it. It's like the, the sprinter, the, the women's sprinter for the U S team who was found to, they did the carbon isotope test, which they don't do in MMA, but that's how they found out that she was on testosterone. She had qualified for the Olympics by placing fourth. Does yeah. that, I mean, that doesn't mean that, oh, hell, she got fourth? She didn't break any world records? Shit, screw it. Let everybody use TRT. No, that's not how that stuff works. It's still performance enhancing. You still ought, ought not to be able to do it. Uh, I think it's particularly galling when Forrest Griffin, a man who is about four months older than I am, is on TRT. Well, Forrest Griffin and my wife have the same birthday. See? Except Forrest Griffin is a year younger than my wife. And your wife has plenty of testosterone. Oh, yeah. It's coming out of her ears, yeah. frankly. No, but see, that's I don't think that just because you know the people who are using it are not absolutely blowing people out of the water does not mean that, hey, it's fine. I mean, look at the record of people who have been popped for using steroids. It's not necessarily a like a super impressive record. Plenty of guys have lost and been popped for steroids. That should happen. I mean, you'll see people, I think, making this argument. I've seen it online. A bunch of people saying, ah, oh, TRT's fine. They should be getting whatever advantage they can and taking advantage of medical science. I assume these have to be the same people who want to just get out the chemistry sets and have legalized steroids and have it just be, you know, the ultimate freak fighting championships. Because if you're for some kind of performance enhancing drug, uh, then especially like a one with as powerful a chemical as, as powerful a hormone as testosterone, then I don't see how you're not for steroids. Yeah, if you can utilize any any medical science to, to do whatever you want, uh, maybe I would just have a metal fist, like a, <laughs> like a titanium fist or, a, you know, whatever. Bring a club. I don't know. Um, I, I concur with you. I agree. I don't see the need to say much more about it other than if the shit didn't work, dudes wouldn't be doing yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure we'll talk more about this when we move on to Strike Force and we, and we talk about uh, Nate Marquardt's return. But, again, the thing to me is that People, they're, they're, we're not having the right conversation about testosterone a lot of the time because, for one thing, if the guys really are low, then why are they low? Did they do something to themselves that made them low? Are we basically, by giving them testosterone exemptions, are we methadone dealers at that point? Uh, also, if what we're doing is allowing guys who do legitimately have low testosterone either because of age or because their bodies are breaking down or whatever, if we're just injecting that shit in them to the, so that they can ramp it up and keep fighting after the point when their bodies would have forced them to stop, is that necessarily a good thing? Right. 
And then finally, what about all the poor bastards who don't want to use testosterone? What do you say to Brian Stan, the guy who sat there when I was talking to him in Stockholm and said, this sucks to have to compete against guys who you know are getting an illegal leg up. Like, he doesn't want to start using testosterone because once you start using testosterone, you have to keep using testosterone because your body stops producing it naturally. So... All those problems, I think we're not really touching on it. Instead, we're looking at, oh, Force was on testosterone and he didn't even beat the shit out of Tito Ortiz? It's fine. No, it's not fine. The last question this week comes from Sean Moore, who uh, poses a question about the format of the Ultimate Fighter reality show. He asks, I think the best option for Tough at this point would be to have Ronda Rousey rematch with Misha Tate. Uh, It would bring a lot of new female fighters into the spotlight, and you know people would want to watch. Your thoughts? Uh, and if you could do anything with tough, what would it be? And yeah, I, I think that, that Tate and Rousey would make great coaches for the, for the UFC. Or Let's for, all just pretend like that, that, that Rousey Kaufman fight is already over and then Rousey has broken her arm. Let's all just pretend that, huh? Oh, well, if you had let me finish, <laughs> I would have in fact have said that, that Ronda Rousey already has a fight lined up with Sarah Kaufman. So there you, you've got that obstacle in your way. And, and to, to the larger point, I think that any coaching tandem that you choose I mean, Shane Carwin and, and Roy Nelson's not a bad, not a bad tandem because you know Roy Nelson's going to become, I think, the third guy who is actually on the show to come back as as a head coach, and Carwin can be interesting when he wants to be, and and you know Nelson's going to do that like wry and funny thing that he does all the time, um, and I think that'll make for good TV. But it doesn't matter who you choose at this point because it's just a band aid on a much larger wound, which yeah. is that it seems to me that not only is the talent pool at this point depleted in most of the weight classes but also uh it's just the same show that we've seen over and over again for 15 seasons don't you just feel like you have been in that gym for so long yeah yes like you've just been locked in there and it's like when you when the camera shows that same shot of that gym you just feel like oh god this again yeah in fact i would say like one of if i could if i could do anything to revamp the format even though they would never do this because one of the things that's attractive about the ultimate fighter and indeed one of the things that's attractive about all reality television to producers and people who make TV is that it's really cheap to make. They already have the mansion. They already have the UFC gym. You don't have to pay the guys who are on the show. You don't have to pay the actors except for in the, uh, in the rare instance, or I guess the instance where there's a stoppage and they give them a bonus. Yeah. Uh, you know what I think would be cool? Is tigers, if you didn't, live tigers, ninjas, Bengal tigers, ninjas. I was going to say ninjas, <laughs> but no, what I think would be cool is if they, you didn't like take these guys out of their natural habitat. I've come to think that one of the main drawbacks of this show is that you don't actually get to see what these guys are like. You get to see what they're like in this totally made up construct for TV. I think it would be cool if the UFC went to all of the top camps in America and were like, hey, we're doing this welterweight tournament. Who's your best welterweight? Not in the UFC. We're going to throw him into this tournament. But then the guys got to stay home and train with the, the camps and the teams that they normally train with so you want prime time that. yes that's what you want prime time like for UFC guys that we don't know yeah well i mean how is that any different than having the first episode of the show be 32 fucking guys you're never going to see again and everybody because goes they're shit. in a house and you get to find out what happens when people <laughs> stop being polite and start being real okay fair point fine what would you do to the show now that you've poo-pooed my idea which is still an awesome idea uh you know i it's tough. I don't. I don't know what the hell you do with it because essentially, without completely changing the show, which is what you really want to do, it's it's hard for for me to come up with any suggestions that would still make me want to watch it. I mean, it's. I think. For, okay, here's one thing. I think too much stock is put into getting the coaches who are fighters who are rivals. Like that to me is not as interesting. I mean, sure, sometimes it's interesting to be like, oh wow, Rampage is a really terrible coach who doesn't care, uh, and then you know somebody else who seems like a good coach. I'd rather see, like, 
And maybe it would be hard to get them to agree to this because they have other shit to do. But I'd like to see like Greg Jackson uh, and, you know, somebody like uh, Duke Rufus or somebody, right? So, like, in o- so in other words, my idea, but you just have them live in a house. Yes. Okay. Well, okay. that's very original your idea. No, but I'm not, saying, up with that I'm not right saying Greg Jackson just brings his own guys and Duke Rufus brings his guys. They have to start. Clean slate with guys that they've never met before, guys that have come from all over. Um, they get to do the same evaluations and pick teams and shit like that. But then it's what can they do with these guys? And we get to see like some actual coaching rather than just like we're hoping for Roy Nelson and Shane Carwin to just kind of snipe at each other, maybe punch through a cardboard door or something and get mad and maybe, you know, prank one another's rental cars. Like that to right. me is not super interesting. Plus, the coaches. Uh, almost always now seem to have something that keeps them from fighting in a timely fashion. So it's hard for for me to really believe when you tell me, and then these two guys are going to fight at the end of the season. And I'm like, "Eh, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I'm not totally sold on that. Anyway, that's uh, listener mail for this week. If you have questions for us, you can go to the website and click the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. But we've got a lot to talk about, and we don't want to waste the whole show uh, on the intro portion. So let's go ahead and segue into round one, where I think we're going to talk about Strike Force. Damn right. Round one. After more than a year away from the cage while we sorted out the fallout from his uh, testosterone replacement therapy scandal, Nate Marquardt returned this week at Strike Force and won the company's vacant welterweight title with a, a pretty damn good performance against uh, Tyron Woodley. Uh, it looked good on his feet, threw a spinning back kick, which was nice, used a pretty inside trip to shit. take... I do love spinning shit. For spinning Who doesn't, shit. except for Nate Diaz, <laughs> or Nick Diaz. Uh, used a pretty inside trip to take uh, Woodley down at one point. Um, really just kind of roughed him up. Faced it, it, a little adversity, got, yeah. got, got rocked a couple times by, point, by Woodley's right point. hands, but came back, um, put together a nice finishing combo, almost as cool as the finishing combo he used against Wilson Govea back in the day. My question, Ben, to kick things off for this round for you is, did, did Nate Marquardt find any redemption in this, in this victory? Redemption is a funny word to use here, and one I've seen bandied about a lot. Um, it's a good victory it's a good way for him to come back he puts himself right back there in the conversation uh and in a new weight class where he does seem legitimately threatening however let's not make this into more than it is it's the strike force welterweight title it's not the ufc welterweight title he, he was gone for almost a year and a half came back and won one fight and he won a fight against a good you know a, a fighter with a lot of ability and good good wrestling skills but who frankly had never really faced that level of competition before. Just come off, you know, uh, barely beat Jordan Mine and Paul Daly, guys like that. Uh, and again, not saying that a win over Tyron Woodley, who'd never been beaten, means nothing. But it's not as if Nate Marquardt is atop the mountain right now after that win. I mean, unless you want to disagree with me. No, on that I one. don't disagree. In fact, we were talking before we turned the podcast on and... Uh, I said that I thought that the term redemption implied that you had in some way been proven right or been proven like <laughs> that you had championed over some adversity. And I'm not sure. Okay, that he that, has. There's he a has, thing. He has. He has uh, triumphed over some adversity, but the adversity was entirely of his own making. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, what makes this weird is that people are acting like that it's this redemption story that, you know, like it'd be one thing, you know, it's like. Guy gets in a, a car accident and is injured and out for a while, or a guy goes through a staph infection and is out for a while and then works really hard to get himself to come back. 
I mean, he didn't have that kind of adversity. He got himself in trouble for doing something he wasn't supposed to do, right. or at least doing it in a way he wasn't supposed to do it. Then uh, was out so long, mainly because he just they couldn't really find a place for him to land that was suitable for them. Tried to do that thing with Bama, never really got a fight there. Got out of it, got the strike force, and then he wins one fight. It's great. He looked really good in that fight. However, I'm going to say he looked so good that it makes me wonder, so you're telling me that you were suffering from a crippling testosterone deficiency that threatened to derail your life and career, that, that necessitated medical intervention. You did it, didn't work out that well, now you're off of it, and this is how you look when you're off? When you're Huge, off of enormous, it? by the way, at 170 pounds. Like. Enormous, explosive, fast, just out, looked really, really good. And you're this is how you look when you're off? I mean, to me, that undermines the entire claim that he was ever... Like, he's a year older now than he was then. If anything, he should have less testosterone. And if he was on synthetic testosterone, it takes a while for your body to start producing uh, its own testosterone again. And if it, when it did, it would presumably just go back to the same low levels it was at before. And that's you at those previous levels? Like That, to me, makes it even harder to swallow that he really needed that treatment. Here's what I wonder. Um, I think once you have been proven to be either a steroid user or a, or the guy who's on testosterone replacement therapy, then that idea has been planted in the public's mind, at least the public that cares enough and is perceptive enough about the sport to, to know that that has happened. And so now that Nate Marquardt says that he is not on TRT anymore, he comes back, he has like a much better performance than I expected after a guy who's been out of action. Yeah. Just being out that year. long and looking that sharp is impressive. Uh, he has this great performance. I feel like the seed has already been planted in the mind of the public where the thing that you think is, well, he's got to be doing something. Not necessarily just about Nate Marquardt, but I think also say about like Alistair Overeem, who, yeah. who you know, f failed his drug test leading up to his proposed fight with Junior Dos Santos. Once you've been exposed as a guy who does these kind of things, even if you're not testing positive or even either, you know, even if you say you, you've gotten off testosterone replacement therapy, it's kind of like, well... Uh, but but you you're, you're a guy who will who will do that. Yeah. You would do that if who, given who's the shown chance. that you will t try and take that advantage if you can get it. And here's also the thing, because of the way the athletic commissions do their drug testing, how do you know for sure that he's off of it? Like, if if anything's going to teach a guy to get his levels down in check the way they need to be, it's going to be getting popped for. I mean, we mentioned that before. So how do we know that he's really off of it? That he didn't just get better at cycling it the way you know we talk about Alistair Overeem it's that same kind of concern the way you know if a guy is using synthetic testosterone is you do the carbon isotope ratio test that's how they caught the Olympic sprinter that's what all the the anti-doping people you know Victor Conte Dr. Don Catlin that's what all those people say is you need to be doing those tests and the athletic commissions by and large do not do those tests so they can't tell you whether a guy is on synthetic testosterone all they can tell you is what his testosterone to epi testosterone ratio is and as Balco found out when they were trying to fool the Major League Baseball uh, tests was that those tests don't, don't differentiate between if you raise the, the epitestosterone level at the same ratio. You know, they don't differ. If it's four to one, they don't differentiate between four to one and eight to two. Right. You know, so we don't necessarily know for sure that. And again, that doubt still exists for people. Is and he really off here? Of it? Here's my fear about that doubt, especially if I were a promoter. And this is one of the things that I thought about in terms of Alistair Overeem when I said that that the UFC needs to be really careful before they even give this guy a chance to fight for the heavyweight title again. At, at, like what damage does it do to the promotion public relations wise? And maybe Strikeforce is just like, 
you know, so irrelevant at this point that it, it doesn't matter. But like, what damage does it do to the promotion to have a welterweight champion or to potentially have a heavyweight champion that everyone looks at and thinks, oh, this guy's a cheater. Yeah. This guy has proven to be a cheater before. Because, I mean, I don't know what you were thinking when Nate Marquardt knocks out Tyron Woodley and then does a cartwheel in the middle of the ring. <laughs> but I know what I was thinking. And it was this noise. Well, <laughs> and like, I don't, if you're a, uh, if you're an MMA promoter, I don't think that's the noise that you want going on inside the heads of your viewers when your welterweight champion or your heavyweight champion just fought. So at some point, I think promoters are going to have to step in and they're going to have to go above and beyond what the athletic commission is already doing, not only to prove to the other competitors, because obviously what you have here is a safety issue when guys are using uh, PEDs, but to also prove to the fans, probably most importantly, because if Alistair Overeem comes back, passes a couple drug tests and knocks out Junior Dos Santos, and becomes the UFC heavyweight title or title holder. I think that's a problem for the UFC. Yeah, it is a problem. And the UFC has been kind of lucky. With You think about the times when it could have happened. You know, what if Shane Carwin had beat Brock Lesnar, and then that's when that news broke about him being involved in that steroid scandal. Or if Chael Sonnen had beaten Anderson Silva, and then comes out and it's, you know, these testosterone levels are off the charts. So they, they've kind of dodged a couple bullets there. And if I were them, I would be thinking about how many more times you want to take that risk. I'd also be to the point now where I would just be telling these guys, I don't care what the Nevada Athletic Commission is willing to let you do. No more therapeutic use exemptions. I mean, that's one of the things that the UFC can do is just tell these guys, stop applying for this shit. You don't get to do this. It's, it's, it brings too much of the wrong kind of attention. And also, especially when you look at, you know, Forrest Griffin now is the latest one to add to the list. And then you, get, you know, and, and you look back at, okay, that same fight, main event of that card, there's Chael Sonnen who's got a therapeutic use exemption. Then the last one before that, the, the big one in uh, Vegas where Frank Mir had a therapeutic use exemption. Oh, and by the way, he was only in the main event because Alistair Overeem got popped for testosterone because he didn't ask first. When you start to look at that kind of stuff, people, I mean, I guess there's only two options. Either MMA fighters seem to suffer from a goddamn epidemic of low testosterone, either of their own making one way or another, if you think it's past steroid use or weight cutting or I mean I guess the weight cutting excuse doesn't really fly for Frank Mir who's a lifelong heavyweight or Forrest uh, Griffin really well Forrest Griffin cuts some weight he's a, he's a pretty big 205er but uh, yeah but hadn't he hasn't been doing it his entire didn't do life it through college and high school and all that. So, yeah okay but or if they're just training themselves too hard and, and hurting their endocrine systems but either way it's either that or they're lying they found a loophole in the athletic commission. They've realized that the Nevada commission is soft on this. If you learn how to game the system, you get a friendly doctor to cook some results for you. You get it through, uh, and you know you get permission to use a performance-enhancing drug. It's got to be one or the other. Either something about MMA and the MMA lifestyle is just wrecking dudes' endocrine systems, or they're, they're bullshitting and they're taking advantage of a loophole. Neither one is good for the no. UFC or for MMA. And something has to be done about that because clearly this isn't going away when you got 33-year-old guys like Forrest Griffin getting on TRT. I mean, at this point, when, when Dan Henderson fights John Jones, right? Dan Henderson, one of the pioneers of TRT in this sport. And you look at John Jones, who will be 25 years old by that point, and are you thinking... Well, he's probably got a couple more years of healthy endocrine system before he, he gets on TRT. <laughs> what the hell? Uh, I wanted to talk about Luke Rockhold in this round, but we're out of time, so maybe we'll talk about Luke Rockhold. Wow, really? Uh, Luke in, Rockhold just gets shafted in, like that? in round two. Because I went two. on too long? Is that what you're saying? Well, you did kind of go on. You're laying this on like my... The end. Okay, yeah. You know, but we will have round two coming up where I think we will discuss the middleweight division yeah, at large. So we can sneak Luke Rockhold in there somewhere. Uh, first, though, back after a week's absence... The world's self-proclaimed leading theatricalist, uh, Sir Nigel Longstock, will be joining us for yet another installment of Master Tweet Theater.
And now, Master Tweet Theater. And now it's time again for the segment loved by some, Master Tweet Theater. We welcome back friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Hello, Nigel. sir. How are you today? I'm excellent. We we missed you on last week's episode of the podcast. Uh, and when I say we, I mean we were in mist. Uh, we noticed you were gone. Yes, I'm afraid I was not able to appear on last week's installment of the co-main event podcast because I was forced to travel to Iowa. To bail really? Out, yes, to bail out my good-for-nothing cousin Merle Longstock. <laughs> well, so... You have family in Iowa. I wouldn't have thought that. But what was what was Cousin Merle's problem? Well, Cousin Merle had been in Des Moines appearing nightly at the local Hooters, despite, uh. despite a court-ordered restraint. Oh, and why, why did he have a court-ordered restraint? Well, Cousin Merle is extremely popular with the ladies, but, but really <laughs> only to his own assessments. So you and Cousin Merle are a lot alike, except for the knighthood, is what you're telling me. No, no, sir. Cousin Merle and I are completely different. He is an illiterate hog farmer, and I am a fancy, fancy man. <laughs> well, clearly. Anyway, now you're, you're back. Uh, I assume everything is cleared up at the Des Moines area Hooters, uh, and they can get back to whatever normal constitutes for them. So, without further ado, let's jump right into Master Tweet Theater. For those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel will read us one by one a series of, of five tweets from someone in the MMA community, uh, not necessarily a fighter, but often a fighter. Chad and I will attempt to guess who it is. Sir, Sir Nigel, you want to take it away? <clears throat> yes. Let us begin with tweet the first. <clears throat> Several days a week, most people talk about the Bible. Most people don't discuss the Constitution after grade school. Read the number sign Constitution. <laughs> Chad, uh, I know you're passionate about the Constitution. You, <laughs> yeah. you want to go first? Yeah. Uh, boy, someone who is into the Constitution. Wow. Um, I am going to guess, wait, we did him, we did him maybe last week or two weeks ago, but I'm going to go with Matt Linland. Oh, yeah. Well, Matt Linland, uh, last one was all about how, what a wombat is, and, uh, that was kind of off-putting, but this could be Matt Linland. I don't know, though, someone passionate about the Constitution... I'm a little put off by how he seems to think the Constitution is more important to read and talk about than the Bible, but I still, this sounds like a Matt Hughes to me. Sir Nigel? Both fine guesses and both constitutional scholars, but no. It is in fact <laughs> Shane Carwin. Uh -huh. Shane Payne Train Carwin. <laughs> well, I, I guess we won't point out to Shane Carwin that the Constitution is a living document and yeah. that, uh, you know, just because we read what our forefathers wrote doesn't mean... We know what the hell to do about text messages or anything. But, all right. Sir Nigel, want to go, go for the second one right now? <clears throat> yes. Tweet the second. I don't know what's happened the traffic stop here on 15 North. What happened you now? I feel like you're trying to, to relate some kind of syntax there. Uh, could, you, could you give that one to us again? <clears throat> I read the tweets as written, sir. <clears throat> I don't know what's happened the traffic stop here on 15 North. What's happened you now? Okay, okay. So we're looking at a non-native English speaker or someone who sat on their cell phone. 15 North, that would suggest to me either Las Vegas or Butte. Sure. Could, could yeah. be Butte. Yeah. 
Uh, if maybe Keith Jardine was was traveling home to see some family. Um, though you know what though, I'm gonna say anger got the better of this person. Las Vegas native Frank Muir. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting guess. Uh, I'm gonna go similar, similar direction, but an older gentleman. Maybe that he doesn't tweet a lot. Uh, maybe he's not used to handling his phone and driving at the same time. Randy Couture. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, I feel pretty sure you're wrong, but Sir Nigel? No, gentlemen, it is neither elderly resident resident of Las Vegas. It is, in fact, Vanderlei Silva. Oh, okay. Silva well, was a non-native English. Yeah, and in Las Vegas. I really feel like we should have got that one. But uh, hopefully whatever happened on the 15 North uh, got cleared up and Vanderlei was able to get to the store where he, like, what's his name, forgot his wallet and had to go home. Uh Number three? <clears throat> tweet the third. Pardon me. Tweet the third. You will never hear anyone say, I did exactly the right amount of coke last night. <laughs> Whoa. Those are quotation marks. It's a character within the character. <laughs> that's, that's not bad. Uh, I, that feels ripped off from like an 80s stand-up bit somehow. But uh, that's all right. Um, I, I got to say somebody clever and funny... Josh Barnett. Hmm. That that's a good guess. I think that's a good guess. I am going to go with. Boy, I'm kind of drawing a blank. Uh, Matt Metrione. He's my go-to yeah, guy. That is your go-to so, guy, Sir Nigel. Well, you are right that Josh Barnett is clever and funny, and Matt Metrione is a UFC heavyweight. But this quote is from the poet Philip Baroni. Oh. <laughs> okay, okay. Two things here. One. I'm worried about Philip Baroni uh, with this cocaine tweet. Two, stuff like this makes me wonder if he is just trying to get on Master Tweet Theater. Is that possible? You know, I thought, I almost guessed the poet Philip Baroni, but then I thought that it wasn't like motivational enough or there was no quote, motivational quote from, from that he clearly just crammed off the internet. Yeah. So uh, I didn't go that way. I guess I'm kicking myself now. Well, st- stay strong, Philip Baroni. A keen observer of both the human condition and cocaine. (laughs) Tweet the fourth. Rules for happiness. Something to do. Someone to love. Something to hope for. Immanuel Kant. Heart (laughs) night. Wait, what? What? Hold on. Is that a real Immanuel Kant quote? His name is immediately after the quotation marks, sir. You know, I'm not trying to be an asshole here. But I've read a little bit of Kant, and I don't, I don't recall that one, and it just doesn't, it doesn't read like a Kant quote to me. Chad, you, you have any input here? I know almost nothing about the great philosopher, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess that the person who tweeted this does not either. <laughs> I mean, one thing I think we know about Immanuel Kant's take on uh, what it takes to live a happy life is it's extremely fucking complicated. <laughs> um, but all right, okay, let's... Let's get past that and think about who the person behind the tweet is. Um, somebody who sends out some kind of inspirational good night tweets. Uh, maybe takes their cue about what Immanuel Kant thinks from stuff they read on Facebook. Um, John Jones. I'm going to say John Jones. I think I got this one dialed. It immediately struck me as the secondhand tweetings of... Celebrity Octagon Girl, Ariani, Louisa, Marie, 
Louisa Celeste. <laughs> Sir Nigel? My God, he's gotten it. Yes. It is Ariane Celeste, quoting Immanuel Kant on Twitter. Well, I would like a, a follow-up tweet from Ariane where she cites a text and page number so we can all go and look that up. But I guess we'll have to wait on that. Ariane Celeste, known throughout the industry for her fantastic comp. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Wow. Come on, man. Oh, <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on as quickly oh, as possible. I learned Jesus. that joke from my grandfather. <laughs> Whenever a woman speaks of philosophy, I use it. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Everybody go to UFC.com and vote for me. I don't know what it is for, but vote anyway. <laughs> Chad, you want to go first? Uh, no, not really. Um, <laughs> boy, I'm going to guess UFC, erstwhile UFC lightweight fighter, featherweight fighter, TJ Dillashaw. I'm going with TJ Dillashaw. Huh. Okay. Um, you know, I'm going to say Clay Guida because he seems like a guy who is often up for some kind of vote things, but also does not give enough of a shit to find out what it is. So, Nigel? Both fine guesses, both as usual wrong. Damn. The tweet comes from Hoist Gracie. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Already been voted for for virtually everything at UFC.com. Yeah, I'm not really sure what, what we're voting for Hoist for. Any, anyone have any insight on that one? No, no. Well, whatever. I hope, uh, I hope that m motivated people to jump right on there and vote for him for whatever he imagines he was up for. Anyway, um, Sir Nigel, thank you for stopping by. Uh, what do you got planned for this week? Thank you for having me, sir. Well, I myself will be appearing first at the Polk County Courthouse in a rare morning engagement with my cousin Merle, and then after that at the Ingersoll Dinner Theater, where I will play the title role in Nonsense as The Nonsense. <laughs> well, good luck in both those ventures, uh, especially if you are acting as legal counsel for cousin Merle. I feel like a lot of luck is going to be needed. That was Sir Nigel Longstock, everyone, and that was Master Tweet Theater. Thank you, sir. Oh, shout out to Chastity at Hooters Des Moines. <laughs> Round two. Another installment of the UFC on Fuel TV went down last Wednesday, and in a fight that I think we all expected to be far more competitive, no matter who you pick to win, uh, Chris Weidman just tore through Mark Munoz like nothing. Chris Weidman, like nothing? That's your best? Chris Weidman wore Mark Munoz around like a hat. How about that? Was that better? <laughs> yeah. No, that is, yeah. Chris Weidman wore Mark Munoz like around the octagon like a button. A cornfield. Uh, and just, and according to, I guess, popular opinion, conventional wisdom established himself as a legitimate contender for the middleweight title. Uh, my question to you, Ben, to open up this round is, do you think that Chris Weidman is the next challenger for Anderson Silva, or do you think he needs to win another fight first? You know, the, there's some part of me that said, Hey, he has less than 10 pro fights. Let him win another fight. But then, you know, the more I started to think about that and the UFC's history of, you know, who they've been willing to put into title fights and when, uh, I kind of wondered about my own logic there. You know, especially because who would you put him against? It seems to me when people say he... Well, I know the answer, but the guy that I would put him against fights in Strikeforce right now. So. Okay, well, I knew you'd find a way to sneak Luke Rockwell <laughs> in there. But the thing is, uh, 
most of the suggestions that you could come up with would either be guys who Anderson Silva has already beat, in which case, uh, I hate when, and the USC has gotten really good about this in the last few years, uh, you know, five, six years, but if you're a matchmaker, you and if you're making a, a contender fight, or any kind of fight, you should make a fight where you can be happy with the results and you can do something with the winner, regardless of who it is. Right. Don't make a fight where you just want to see one guy crush the other guy to make him look good. Don't make a, a Crow Cop Gabriel Gonzaga fight because right. then you get screwed and you well, deserve uh, yeah, to Yeah, and you could probably argue that Chris Weidman just won that fight, right? Because the, I think the yeah. UFC would have been happy with either one of those guys yeah. emerging as the number one contender. And they could have definitely, if, if Mark Munoz had ran through Chris Weidman, had wore Chris Weidman around the octagon like a hat. Like a button, warm around <laughs> like a button on his jacket. Uh, then I think... You know, people would have no problem saying Mark Munoz in there next because he just has a little more experience. Uh, so, what? You, why do you want to see him go crush some dude, or, or hopefully crush some dude who Anderson Silva has already beaten? What happens if that guy wins? Does, does he then get propelled into uh, another shot with Anderson Silva? It creates those kind of logistical problems. I think what's yeah. going to happen more likely uh, is, is that if Hector Lombard goes out there and looks great this weekend against Tim Boach, then it's a lot easier to, to make that case for Hector Lombard because the stranger comes to town element that sure. we talked on about on last week's episode. Uh, but yeah, after that, especially blowing through a guy like Mark Munoz and doing it like that, I mean, that, that shit was impressive. Yeah. As much as I hate the, uh, what, what we typically do in this industry where we, we pick a straw man and build him up as the next great thing. And then when he loses, we're like, Oh man, I can't believe we, I knew he was overrated. Was good. Yeah. We get on our, message I was the boards. only one who knew <laughs> we get on our message boards and talk about how overrated said guy was and how we couldn't believe he was good. In All the you other place. idiots thought he was a real deal. I can't believe man. You. Chris Weidman looked legit against yeah. Mark Munoz came out, took the in national championship aspect. wrestler down easily, uh, easily. Munoz's face when he got taken down the yeah. first time was like, wait a minute. Yeah. This the, isn't this isn't how this is supposed to go. Mark was, Munoz takes people down. People thing, don't take Mark Munoz down. The thing that down. was most impressive to me was the comprehensive nature of the beatdown. Took him down, dominated him in the scrambles, which I think is a thing we thought Mark Munoz was really good at. Uh, it threatened him with submissions almost from the word go. Uh, you know, appeared to be the physically stronger fighter, which I think heading into this fight, we would have told you Mark Munoz was a powerhouse yeah. at middleweight. And then at the point when Mark Munoz finally works his way up to the feet, and, you know, Mark Munoz, his vaunted heavy hands, you think, okay, well, maybe we'll see what, what Munoz can do here. Maybe he can turn things around. He gets knocked out almost immediately by Badly. a sickeningly awesome standing elbow from Chris Weidman and then uh, Josh Rosenthal. Josh Rosenthal. Just to make really sure they did The physical embodiment of the voice on the Mortal Kombat game that shouts, <laughs> finish him. That's what Josh Rosenthal was doing. I mean, come on, man. And I know Josh Rosenthal admitted afterwards that he was a little slow on the trigger yeah, on that one. Uh, and that's but that's a couple in a row there. And I'm glad to see him admit that mistake. And sure, he has done it before, like in the Carwin Lesnar bout where he let it go on. And, and it proved to be the right decision. But that was one where he's standing right there. And I'm sitting there on the couch yelling, stop the fight. Yeah. I mean, that was bad, man. Yeah, I, I try not to be overly critical of the refs because I think that they have... Maybe the hardest job in all sports. The hardest job with the least reward, yeah. I think. Because, I mean, not only are they, you know, uh, in charge of a sport that where things happen at lightning speed, but, like, the decision that they make ends the entire game. Yeah. And, they, and you can't undo it. No, you So can't. it's a kind of pressure that your, your hockey referee and your football referee, your baseball umpire, rarely see. Yeah. It'd be like if, you know, if, if a play at first base ended the entire game every time <laughs> and... 
If you screwed it up, there was no going back. Yeah. Uh, so it was a really late stoppage. It was one of the uglier ones that I've seen in a while, but I generally, as a as a as a rule, try not to to rag on the refs too. Okay. Hard. Well, now I mean, we talked though about. The state of the middleweight division. Sure. Anderson Silva has cleaned it out pretty thoroughly. You got Chris Weidman who comes in here like a godsend and and in violent, savage fashion gets himself up there in the conversation. Um, but then you look over at Strike Force and you got Luke Rockhold and you got Tim Kennedy and Tim Kennedy I think was a little more vocal about this beforehand, but saying, "Look, even if I beat Luke Rockhold, what then? Then you're still stuck in Strike Force." Right. Tim Kennedy of course did not beat Luke Rockhold. Uh, did not ever really display the sense of urgency that you would have expected to see from him down there in the stretch. But Luke Rockhold definitely looked good. He beat Tim Kennedy more convincingly than I've seen other people beat Tim Kennedy before. So he's definitely one of the the top middleweights out there. How good is he? We don't know. Yeah. And it seems like we're not going to get a chance to find out anytime soon. But it really sucks for him because he, as a pro athlete, has got a pretty small window. Yeah. This could be his prime right now, and, and he's frankly, wasting it fighting twice a year in Strike Force. I also kind of think it sucks for Strike Force because it's like a catch twenty two for that promotion. Like you can't have a viable and relevant relevant MMA promotion without good fighters, but it seems like the better fighters that they get in Strike Force, the more irrelevant it just makes Strike Force seem because guys like uh, Gilbert Melendez and Luke Rockhold are the guys that we really want to see in the UFC. Yeah. So to my mind, it's just the same old conversation that we've had a million times, and that is Strike Force. Pretty much totally irrelevant. Yeah. And it would be better for everyone in MMA if Strikeforce just went ahead and died. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, b- better for MMA if we, the MMA journalists, just start ign- ignoring it. Oh, well, now, now you're, you know what you are? You're an activist journalist. <laughs> no, Legis- legislating from the desk. You're, you're, you're le- legislating from the laptop. There's no place for that. Uh, but I oh, mean, we're it, just encouraging them, though. Well, we it, are just encouraging them. I mean, what are we doing now if not uh, ignoring them? Like, at the press conference, there were four reporters there. Uh, if you, from reading MMA Junkie's report, MMA Junkie was one of them. You know, and there's no no one else is going there and covering that stuff. Yeah, but uh, how many stories did the average MMA news website? You work I mean, for one of them. People are watching. How many? It. How people, many did they write after it was over? Like five, four. I think we treat it with the appropriate amount of attention. I mean, if stuff's going on, they're they're good fighters. Stuff is happening. Yeah, I mean, we can't just completely pretend that it that it doesn't exist because we hope I that would. it'll. Compl- I would just pretend <laughs> that it didn't exist. Well, you're a bad person, <laughs> uh, but I think it, it's a weird thing too because the fighters don't want to be there, and we know they don't want to be there. And what's the point of having this organization where the best thing that could happen to you? is you get to the point where you're stuck at the very top and can go no further, and every fight is just a lose-lose situation for you. Here's what I want to see. One, one night, eight-man tournament for, to determine the middleweight number one contender. Uh, Weidman, Belfort, Tim Boach, Hector Lombard, Mike Bisping, Look, man. Luke Rockhold. I need two more. <laughs> Who <laughs> this else is, is not- out there? Yuki Kondo. No, this is not 1996. Okay, we'll throw Hicks and Gracie in there. It's and not. And we'll do... Uh, <laughs> this is really not the Saitama Super Arena. We're not doing one-night tournaments. UFC-era Don Fry. He can cut down. <laughs> what do you think? I think that you have just wasted some of the time of this podcast. Let's move on. All right. Um, so if you are Joe Silva for a day, who's the guy... And you, you have the decision in your hands. Who's the guy that you make the, the uh, number one contender? Who fights Anderson Silva next? Uh, I would wait and see how Hector Lombard does. Uh, 
I think it's easier to sell that fight. If he goes out there and completely blitzes Timboch, I think it's easier to sell that fight, and Weidman's got a little bit of time um, that you can kind of wait on him, and, and you don't have to push him into a fight right away. See, I would do Weidman. I think that... Uh... I think that he is probably going to be the, the the stiffest test, and I think maybe even a little bit more uh, sellable than than Hector Lombard at this point. Even I mean, just from the performance against Munoz, it gives you a lot you can talk about leading up to the fight. Even though uh, I would not say that Chris Weidman lights it up on the mic. When, no, he, when he does gets not. The That's a problem. To, uh, to put uh, himself over, but as far as I know, Hector Lombard doesn't even speak English. So I think he speaks a little bit of English. All right, my job yeah, is no, just I've called, stuff. I've, I've, I've called Hector Lombard and gotten his uh, his voicemail, uh, which sounds like the outgoing voicemail message uh, sounds like, you know, when you when you make a call and you don't you don't know that your phone is on. That's what his outgoing voicemail message sounds like. Uh, at least it was when I called him, as if like it had just gone like he had accidentally rolled over on it in the middle of the night, and then <laughs> it goes for as long as the voicemail outgoing greeting will allow you to go for. Uh, so. That one maybe did not clear up the question of whether he speaks the King's English or not. No, but I'm glad you related that anecdote. That's what you get on the CME. You before, get the inside stuff, like what Hector Lombard's outgoing voicemail message is. <laughs> Clay Guida's outgoing voicemail message. Of course, a Big Lebowski reference. Sure, yeah. Before we go on to uh, round number three, we will do the the recurring feature on the podcast, back by popular demand. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Ben, you want to go first? I or? do want to go first. Okay, go first. Okay. So, as many of you know, many, but not all of you, I'm sure, uh, one of the, the fights, the very first fight of the night, I believe, on the Strike Force card, the, on the prelim card, Jason High, who, great Twitter, Casey Bandit MMA, if you're, if you're in the, into the Twitter thing. If you nasty. If you nasty. Okay. He goes out there. He submits Nate Moore in the first 30 seconds of the fight. Boom. It's over with. Jason High, people know him, and he's been around for a while. Never sees air. You couldn't find, when you're showing highlights and stuff later on in the night, you, you couldn't find time on Showtime Extreme. You couldn't find time on Showtime Actual to give Jason High just a couple seconds just to show the, the end of the fight and just say, oh, by the way, Jason High fought tonight and he won. Are you fucking kidding me, Showtime? Are you fucking kidding me, Showtime? Uh, my are you fucking kidding me is for anyone over the next couple of months that plans to pay to watch former WWE champion Dave Batista <laughs> make his MMA debut, which I guess is going to go down October 6th at uh, some promotion, I believe in Boston, called CES MMA or, or something of that effect. You know, I don't fault Dave Batista for this, even though, <laughs> even though every time you see a picture of the guy, you should think to yourself, are you fucking kidding well, me? Uh, well. I don't fault Batista for this, even though he's like 43 years old. He's a rich man. You know, he likes BJJ. He's been working out with uh, Team Caesar Gracie. If he wants to get in there and, and roll around with Rashid Smash Evans, who frankly sounds like a guy who got cut out of the original uh, the original shot of Friday Night Lights or something. He sounds like a video game character. Uh <laughs> That's fine. I, you know, I don't, I don't fault him for that. I don't fault the promotion, which is just a small-time independent MMA promotion trying to make a go of it. Who do you they, fault? They get Who do you a, fault? They get a chance to put Batista in there and have him fight somebody. Fine. I fault you if you want to watch it and you want to pay money for it because you know it's going to be on the internet the next day. So <laughs> I hope that they do like two buys for the the pay per view that they're that they're. Uh, I guess allegedly doing so. so to those people, people who want to pay okay. to watch Dave Batista fight, are you fucking kidding? You fucking kidding me, people? Anyway, that's it for this one. We'll be right back with round number three. 
three. On Saturday night from lovely Calgary, Alberta, Canada, UFC 149 brings us a bunch of guys versus the second or sometimes third or fourth or fifth choice opponent in a pay-per-view that, Chad, I'm going to say UFC 149, worst pay-per-view since UFC 147. Follow up to that. What does that say that I don't have to go back very far to find a pay-per-view that seems just as bad? Yeah, wow. You really went out on a limb there, didn't you? Would you go back four weeks? What, Five weeks? What's your What's your point? I mean, what my <laughs> no, I guess that is, is the point, right? Yeah, that, that is the point. I'm saying that, like, you know, it's not like I had to go worst pay per view since UFC 72 Boiling Point or whatever. <laughs> I'm just pulling that one out. Uh, you just had to look back and say, oh yeah, remember that one a few weeks ago that had the same problem? Uh, and here, and this one. Hard to fault the UFC in some ways because, again, it's that injury thing where it, so many guys pull out. Like, you look at the main card, and who, I mean, who on the main card is fighting his first choice opponent at this point? Is anybody still fighting the, the guy that they were originally supposed to fight? Like, Uriah Faber, uh, maybe not on this card, was supposed to fight uh, Dominic Cruz, though, and now he's not. He's fighting Henan Brow, which means we have to sit through a bunch of Henan Brow as a monster commercials. Uh, oh, those during... are cool commercials, though. I do like those, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, the... Compared the, to the, uh, the, what you would call the standard... The uh, first hype. nine times I saw it, I thought that those were cool commercials. Yeah. And then I started to, to go insane. Uh, but then, you know, you got Hector Lombard versus Tim Boach. Tim Boach is not his original opponent, right? But uh, a tough matchup for him, I think. Yeah, All the okay. Same. But see, then uh, Chet Congo versus Sean Jordan. Don't even know who those guys are. <laughs> no, I do, Chet I Congo. do. But. Well, and um, especially Chet Congo, you know, he's supposed to fight Noguera, right? Then Noguera's not totally... Uh, recovered as makes sense when you think about what happened to him. Uh, Brian Ebersol versus James Head. James Head was not his original opponent, and James Head not really exactly a step up in competition from where Brian Ebersol has been recently. Um, and then Chris Clements uh, was supposed to fight our man and Starbucks lover uh, from Master Tweet Theater, Sierra Bada Rosada, who, oh, right. who loves him yeah. some, some Starbucks, especially because I guess where he, he goes, you see lesbians making out, and it's awesome. Um, but instead, he gets Matt Riddle. I mean, Let's say you let's say you're a diehard MMA fan in Alberta. You bought a ticket for this the minute you possibly could, uh, and the card has just gotten weaker and more watered down as you go on. Uh, how are you feeling right about now? Well, you still got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Canadians on there, so I okay. assume that they're going to show up, sing songs, th throw beers at press row. <laughs> I mean, I I get that people want to see their own people their own nationality their local favorites go out there and fight i'm sure they're gonna love them some nick ring when he goes out there and fights uh and nick ring's a good guy i can see why you'd want to see nick ring fight but at the same time i think sometimes we assume that that carries more weight than it does yeah no i was just kidding i think uh, this is the worst card since ufc 147 but at the same time i do see this as a better card just because i do think I think that Uriah Faber versus Henan Barrow is a good fight. That's one that I definitely want to see. I do think that Hector Lombard's entrance into the UFC is interesting. And, and you know, Tim Boach seems to be like the UFC's answer to Chad Griggs in a way. It seems like they just keep throwing him out there. Waiting for something bad to happen to him. Waiting for something him. bad yeah. to happen to him. And he just keeps screwing up their plans. Yeah. So I wouldn't be half surprised at all to see Tim Boach walk away with a victory there. At the same time, this is another card where I wonder how some of these undercard fights don't get bumped up to the to the main card when I see that, you know, Court McGee against Nick Ring, I think would be 
better than Chris Clements versus Matt Riddle. And maybe it's just a yeah. once they make the, the commitment to have those fights on FX, maybe they can't change them. But at the same time, so many things change about these cards. I think you would have to have an out clause of some kind. Well, let's talk about the, the main event for a second. Uriah Faber versus Henan Brow, who we're told is a monster. Uh, that is a legitimately interesting fight. I, tough one to call, I think. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to see that one. I don't still don't know if, you know, it's a main event pay-per-view quality card. It seems like, a, if you will, a co-main event pay-per-view sure, quality sure, card. Sure, why not? Uh, Everyone knows expectations should be lowered for the co-main event. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. They, if they don't, then they must know it by the time they've gotten this far into the podcast. But interim championship, right? Yes. What does that do for you here? Nothing. Again, it's it's another one of those situations where I don't understand the, the interim tag because I would assume... I don't even know what the odds are on this fight, but I would assume if Uriah Faber wins, he will not fight anyone before uh, Dominic Cruz comes back. I suppose in that instance, it gives you a little bit more to steep the grudge match just by saying, you know, now Uriah Faber has a belt. Dominic Cruz also has a belt. So now yeah, it's even more exciting than it would have been before. You mean, I think you know how I feel about interim championships in general. I think that they are stupid. Right, and it's. Spe- uh, and I mean, my. I guess my end point was going to be once again, if you're the interim champion, but you don't fight anyone until the champion yeah. comes back, you're not really the interim champion. You're just the number one contender. Yeah, with all a belt. you've all you've gotten is a physical manifestation of your number one contendership, which I can understand why some guys would want that because the UFC has shown in the past it will take away your number one contender status uh, if it so chooses. <laughs> right. If it's if, if it's, it's if it doesn't manifest itself in in gold and it, leather, yeah. <laughs> At least you can have this thing to hold on to and to you know to to shake in their faces and show that that you by the way uh hen and brow two to one favorite according to most odds break odds makers on on the internet really uh, in this fight yeah yeah wow Uh, so i can get i what what do i get if i put money on favor uh looks like right about now you're at somewhere between plus 160 and as high as plus 171 i take that in a heartbeat i take that walking away i I don't know if i would (laughs) what does that mean it's kind of like warm around with like a hat i don't know i don't know exactly (laughs) what it means i I haven't thought about this fight enough to know who i'm gonna pick when we do our obligatory espn.com picks but uh you sound super excited about but uh uh I think you know how I feel about fight picks, and I think anyone who has heard our solemn vows knows how I feel. But, but I mean, if I can get underdog odds on Uriah Faber, who looked like a monster when he murdered oh. Brian Bowles uh, in his last fight, uh, I'll, I'd take it, man. I would, I would take it walking away. There, I said it again. <laughs> wow. Did it sound any more legitimate that time? No, no. I mean, I think do, it's going to catch on. All I have to say do is just keep emphasis. saying it. Yeah, I guess it'll. Be, I mean, at worst, it becomes the the shittiest catchphrase anyone has ever heard. But. <laughs> Okay, the, the interim championship thing, I think that is kind of the point, though. Is like, okay, so now you have an interim championship. So what if the guy's just going to sit around and wait for, the, for someone else? Uh, what are, who is supposed to get excited about this? I mean, I could almost see back when the interim championship alone would give you the option to make it five rounds. But now the main events are five rounds anyway. You don't really need that stuff. It's clearly just a marketing ploy, just something that you can put on the poster and something that you can shout about in the commercials. Uh, it doesn't really mean it. I mean, no one out there is going, yeah, my goal is to be a USC interim championship. Like, it's just, it's some WWE intercontinental title bullshit, you know? Uh, it, and especially, oh, the, wait, WWE intercontinental title. Okay. Far you're, more legitimate yeah, than an interim true. title in that's mixed martial true. arts. At least it, it used to be. European championship? There you go. Now you're okay. on the right track. <laughs> 
pre uh, the pre China's victory of the of the <laughs> WWE Intercontinental Title, I would have told you it was the second most prestigious title in the in the game. I mean, the Ultimate Warrior held it. Randy Savage, Mister Perfect. Uh, yeah, okay. But to me, I just don't know why we persist in doing this. And if I'm the 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 champion in that situation, that really pisses me off. Like, okay, you know how much your belt means. We can just create another one that we were going to sell online as a $350 replica, and instead we'll just take that out of the storage shed and we'll give it to whoever wins this fight um, just so they can sit around with it, which is exactly what you're doing with the real title. I mean, isn't that supposed to be? That's the cool thing about a a world title. Uh, there's only one of them in each weight class. As soon as you lose that, you, you've lost everything. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, don't know. I would like to see someone from the UFC explain exactly what the thinking is at this point behind having all of these interim title fights. Um, I assume it... How was interim uh, champion Carlos Condit doing, by the way? You mean number one contender, Carlos Condit? <laughs> uh, I think he's doing great. I mean, he has that physical manifestation of his number one contender yeah. status, so he's got a, his feet are probably up at this point. He's, he's probably I mean, just... even when Carlos Condit is sitting around, like he goes out to, to dinner with, with like old you know, family friends or something, and uh, they're like, hey, Carlos, how are you? How, how is everything going with that whole fighting career? And he goes, it's how's great. How's karate? How's everything going? Yeah, with how, the, how's everything going with that? With the uh, extreme wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> how's everything going with that cage fighting thing that you do? And he's like, it's great. I'm actually the, uh, the welterweight champion. I bet his wife, is, under her breath, says interim. Well, because that's hey, what we all are thinking. With no the one it seems to me that no one hates an interim title more than the dude who has an interim title. Like every single one of them, I think who, the champion who has it. Interim says, I think I hate an interim title, arguably as much, if not more, than everybody else. Fair point. Fair point. But have you ever heard anyone who actually has the interim title be like, "Yeah, I'm the champ"? Yeah, no, I mean, they never do that. They yeah. always say you have to beat the be you know you have to beat the man to be the man or whatever Ric Flair says. Yeah, uh, and that's the great thing about combat sports and about, about the idea of there only being one guy in each weight class uh, is that as soon as you just start creating titles, that you, you water down that entire idea, and you are there is no longer that appeal of being able to say I am the man. The thing they used to say about the the heavyweight championship in, in boxing. Uh, the title holder was the emperor of masculinity. Uh, no longer the case if, you know, we're just going to create emperor light uh, if you're not around, if it's inconvenient for us. Well, that Jack Johnson book you've been reading is really bleeding it's, into the it's an awesome, event it's podcast. It's an awesome book. Well, keep it under your hat, maybe for the next uh, tips for a well-rounded fight fan. Anyway, before we wrap up, you know what time it is. It's time that we just start saying stuff. The uh, segment of the show where Ben and I each make a statement that we are then not uh, expected to back up in any way or defend or really ever mention again because we are, in fact, just saying stuff. Ben, you want to go first? No, I want you to go first. Okay. Um, I'm just saying this week, and you know what? I'm not saying this to be mean, and I'm not saying it to tell you that it's right or wrong, and I'm not even trying to tell you what to do. I'm actually saying this. I'm trying to help you out, man, because... <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're walking around wearing those shoes that have the toes built into them, you look like a creep. Just saying. Well, you're making a lot of enemies in this this edition of the podcast. You think? Yeah. Hey, man, if my enemies are the are people popular. who wear those shoes. Well. I mean, if you want to wear them to the gym, I guess that's okay. You still look like a creep, but 
you know, that the creep quotient at the gym is so high anyway. That oh, I've people seen people at the notice. gym that you and I attend wearing those shoes, and they look like they're into their workouts. So, you know what else they look like? Creeps. <laughs> they look like they should be in the bar wearing a, a leather trench coat with their uh, with their own pool cue flung over their back and like a, a fanny pack and big white sneakers. They look but, like but they have the like shoes. Creep. All right. I'm just saying. I had never previously considered this possibility before, in part because I had never spent that much time thinking about him and what he might be into. But after watching Josh Rosenthal just refuse to stop the demolition that was taking place on Mark Munoz's face, I think Josh Rosenthal is probably into some pretty weird sex stuff. Oh, wow. Now, who, now who's making enemies? I'm just saying. Now I'm not saying it's enemies. wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm not judging Josh Rosenthal. I said Josh what Rosenthal. I was saying. I, I wasn't saying it was wrong. I'm not, I'm not judging Josh Rosenthal for his weird, violent, sadistic sexual oh, tendencies. Man. Wow. I'm just saying anybody who likes to see that much punishment doled out and their stomach doesn't turn a little bit, let's just say you, you meet him at a bar and go home with him. You better know what you're getting into. I'm just saying. You probably also have those have shoes a safe word. with the toes. Have a safe word. Anyway, that's it. Cannot for this. stress that enough. That's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week. Be sure you get your submissions in for the co-main event podcast, White Elephant God, I wish you could contest. see this painting. I just it's, wish you could see it. This week you'll see it, and it is awesome. I, I, I think even if you didn't plan on turning in an essay, you'll want to. Yeah, you will, you will you see see this. You will painting. see this. You will black out, and when you come to, you'll have written a five-paragraph essay. And we think it's a painting of Anderson Silva. Anyway, that's it for us. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from MMA Fighting. We are done. We will be back next week. We're taking this one going away. (laughs) We're around with a hat. Button on our shirt. You know what we should have is a safe word (laughs) for the podcast. Can our our safe word be creepy toe shoes? Yeah. Yeah. Many words. How about (laughs) Noxamora? Whoa. Stop Stop everything. Stop everything and let's, let's take a second and breathe and talk to